Welcome to the Resources for Integrated Care webinar, Supporting Older Adults with Substance Use Disorders. This podcast is excerpted from a webinar presented live on May 16, 2018. In this podcast, David Oslin, Chief of Behavioral Health at Philadelphia's Veterans Affairs Medical Center, discusses alcohol use disorder among older adults. Thank you, and uh, thanks for all those on on the uh, webinar today. Um, it's really exciting to talk about this topic. I've had sort of a lifelong passion of working in this area, so if we could just go to the next slide. So um, I wanted to start by just talking about how substance use is a little different in older adults, and this is a, kind of a compilation of the literature and some of my uh, thoughts about it. But um, when we see people in their 60s and 70s who have a substance use disorder, there's a number of things that we need to think about clinically that are just different. Um, from a health perspective, older adults are clearly more likely to be on other on medications. And so the issue of polypharmacy as well as interactions with alcohol with any of a number of medications is, is a really um, important piece. Alcohol has the most drug-drug interactions of any medication we use, so it just interferes in a number of ways with a lot of the treatment we do. Um, There's sort of limited time to address substance issues in a lot of settings. Um, The average primary care provider spends something on the order of about 90 seconds evaluating uh, mental health disorders in primary care setting of their 10 minutes that they have. Um, and there are just different biological susceptibilities. Um, less, it takes less alcohol to have more impairment in older adults, and there's a number of biologic reasons for that that uh, we don't have time to go into today. But in terms of presentation, uh, pain is a very strong uh, correlate to substance use in older adults, so managing people's pain either arthritic pain or other musculoskeletal pain is is an issue that is uh, a feature in managing patients. Um, um, Cognitive impairment is something that has to be managed and dealt with. I'll show a slide later that, um, you know, group therapy has to be really thought of carefully in an older adult. Um, Somebody with very mild cognitive impairment may not be able to really participate in groups the way Um, it's intended to. They may get some of the social aspects out of it, but uh, may not cognitively process much of the information. Um, And there's just a number of issues that happen as we get older. You know, um, we have less structure to our day because we may not have um, family duties or or jobs to do and um, have poor health habits. There's anxiety and depression, and suicide is clearly higher, um, a higher prevalence rate in older adults. So uh, all those are important in terms of ascertainment and thinking about older adults. And, and an important issue for me in taking care of older adults is really thinking about generativity or purpose. Um, you know, this is often a struggle for many older adults in terms of what, what, what are they doing with their life as they, as they age. And it's just an important piece to assess and think about. So next slide. Um, In terms of duly eligible uh, patients, you know, there's some more unique stuff. Basically, duly eligible 
um, beneficiaries are sicker um, and have more um, sort of negative health habits, if you will. And I think everybody probably realizes that. And uh, it's just a, a more vulnerable population. So next slide. So older adults, so this is to just kind of frame us a little bit. I, I realize that we're going to have a focus on opiates today. Um, alcohol really, uh, well, actually, tobacco really still predominates as the substance that is most frequently used in older adults. Um, we don't have a lot of older adult-specific smoking campaigns, but um, older adults do benefit from tobacco cessation and um, because uh, they've been smoking a number of years, um, the prevalence rate is still actually fairly high. Alcohol then is the next most common, more common than prescription medicines. Uh, the range varies uh, for all of these substances depending on the site you're in, uh, depending on your population frame of reference, so to speak. So, you know, higher rates in an ER, lower rates if you go to a community um, event of some sort and just have normal healthy folks, if you will. Um, but any any setting that's a healthcare setting, these rates are actually going to be higher. Um, psychoactive prescription drug misuse, about 2 to 4%. And the, the illicit substances in terms of use disorders are still actually pretty uncommon. Um, but kind of a special note about marijuana, we actually don't know a lot about the prevalence rate of marijuana use in 2018 among older adults compared to what it was before a lot of legalization. Um, so there's not um, real active or contemporary data there. Next slide. Um, so comorbidities, um, so the same comorbidities exist in older adults that do in younger adults, but there's some caveats here. Um, cognitive impairment clearly is one of those caveats in the middle here, um, and suicide is clearly one of those things that we take special note of in older adults. Suicide rates are most, um, um, most elevated in older adults, uh, particularly white men. That still is um, the case. Um, an older adult that has an alcohol use disorder, whether that's mild, moderate, or severe alcohol use disorder, has about three times um, greater likelihood to have a comorbid other mental health disorder. So, you know, we it, it's just so important to assess and include in the treatment planning uh, the assessment of, of uh, comorbidities. Um, one caveat here for um, depression is that, um, two, well, two caveats. One, one is that we, we've done a lot of work, and if people really want their depression to get better, or their PTSD for that matter, um, they need to be abstinent. Um, it, there, there's a pretty direct relationship to lack of abstinence and poor outcomes for depression. Now the other caveat is that there's a strong belief in the, in the, in a, among a lot of providers that if you treat depression or treat the comorbidity, that the substance use will decline. And there's actually almost zero literature for that. Um, you really have to treat both problems. And it's in some ways more important to treat the substance use disorder because the chances of the other mental health disorder getting better 
are almost zero if you don't treat the substance use disorder. Um, and so clinicians often get this a little backwards. Um, we see a lot of patients on antidepressants with no treatment of their alcohol use disorder or other substance use disorder. So that's a really important factor. Treat the substance use as the punchline. Next slide. Um, so, care, so this is just an interesting study that we did asking people who were not actively in treatment who clearly had alcohol use disorder problems, uh, most of them moderate to severe alcohol use disorder. And um, while almost all of them said that they needed to cut down and they recognized that drinking was a problem for them, a lot of them had really misgivings about going to an outpatient treatment program. Uh, not perceiving that they need treatment in a formal treatment program. And this really begs the question of how do we take treatment to patients that don't see addiction treatment programs as, and we'll come back to this, as, as something that's viable for them. And you'll see there's a smattering of other reasons. I think it's important to realize that patients have um, some anxieties about coming to formal uh, treatment programs, and we really need to think about how do you, I saw there was a number of AAAs on the call, how to utilize services that could be delivered at AAAs or primary care settings or other settings. Next slide. Um, what are we looking for in a patient? So again, it sort of depends on the setting, um, but in general, we want to know about drinking at, at any, really at any level, um, particularly for treating them for other health problems. So people that are drinking more than about one standard drink per day or who drink um, more drinks on given days. So we call that binge drinking, but some of my patients binge drink every day. So it's, it doesn't mean cyclical drinking. It just means drinking four or more on a given day. Um, for older adults, in the, the third bullet's huge. Uh, there's a lot of medications that are impacted even by the glass of wine at night. Um, and, and fairly negatively impacted. Coumadin is a great example that you just can't drink on it. It doesn't mean that you have an alcohol use problem. You just can't, you should not combine alcohol and benzodiazepine, I mean, and um, um, Coumadin. Um, we also, in addition to looking for drinking and, the, and, the related, and, and issues related to just drinking, which could mean moderate drinking as above, well, we look for people that have clear-cut addiction. And to me, that means people that have issues of control, issues of craving, or impairments in, in some form or their, uh, aspect of their life. life. Um, so next slide. Um, this is just to remind us of what a standard drink is, and uh, you can read that uh, on your own there. Um, I used to have a mustache, but that is not a picture of me. Um, next slide. This, this slide just gives you a, sort of a quick pocket card of what a standard drink is. I, uh, when I teach residents, I often tell them, or we have a little discussion about um, writing in the chart that the patient drinks a six-pack. Um, and um, after we do the exercise, we do the math about what a six-pack could be. And a six-pack can really actually be anywhere from about um, um, four standard drinks to about 15 standard drinks, depending on the size 
uh, of the, the can of, of uh, beer. So writing a six-pack, the punchline is that that's not very helpful uh, to your colleagues or the patient. All right, next slide. Um, this is a quick uh, screening thing, a screener that you can use pretty much anywhere. It's been validated in older adults, younger adults, men, women, whoever. Uh, probably, I don't know about kids, but um, so it's three questions. It's very simple to use. It's a self-assessment. It can be done over the phone. Uh, it can be done in the waiting rooms. Um, and uh, um, so the next slide, just talk, talk the next slide talks about the scoring. It's scored from zero to 12. A positive score, meaning positive here means somebody that you want to have a discussion with around their drinking. It does not mean they need an addiction treatment program. Um, is a three or a two for women. Um, and somewhere, you know, the higher the score, the more likely they are going to need more formal treatment. So that just the higher the score, the more severe the, the drinking is. Next slide. Um, talk a little bit about primary care approaches. So um, the reality for us in the gerontology area is that most patients go to see primary care, but they don't always go to see mental health. Um, there are validated methods of treating patients or giving patients a, uh, uh, an intervention in primary care. Brief advice, if done properly, is a very valid um, um, modality. It takes some training to do. Referral management uh, relates to the idea that what is said in primary care actually so much dictates whether a patient will come see me as a psychiatrist. Uh, and there's ways to do that and to be successful at it um, and, and the council people. And we've been able to do pharmacotherapy for alcohol use disorders in primary care very successfully. Um, the thing for everybody on the phone to remember is like depression care, substance abuse care can be delivered um, in a quality way in primary care. And in fact, it's, most, it's the place that most patients are actually seen. So thinking about how to deliver appropriate services there is something that I'm uh, fairly passionate about. Next slide. Go to the next slide. Or maybe not. I'll do the next slide. Um, this was actually a trial we did of of um, delivering uh, behavioral health care into a primary care setting using care managers, uh, mostly nurses or social workers or psychologists. The step care approach, identifying people with mild to moderate disease without a lot of comorbidities, treating them in primary care uh, with an emphasis on measurement-based care, um, providing decision support, emphasizing self-management, um, and having visits over not having visits, and that's really what the telephone uh, comment relates to. So if patients aren't able to come for a visit or, or on vacation, you can still do a visit. You can do it over the telephone. Patients love it, particularly older patients, and it's quite effective. Um, we've done uh, uh, some research in this area and shown that this model is actually more effective than sending people to specialty care because more people engage in the model. Um, it really has to do with um, being able to engage patients where they are and where they want to get treated. Next slide. Thank you. 
Um, this was a study we did of older adults in terms of thinking about um, peer support groups, AA mostly, and it just shows that for some older adults, it's a little harder to attend uh, that traditional mode of, of treatment. Um, so they're a little less likely to attend AA, a little less likely to get a sponsor, a little less likely to provide aftercare. So this is after um, going through a residential treatment program. This is actually the um, Hazel and Betty Ford program. So they, they, they really were indoctrinated, if you will, into the model uh, of peer support, um, um, but still struggled. I think, you know, there's a lot of issues there, transportation, people not wanting to be in groups, people having a little bit of cognitive impairment, uh, not being able to get much out of group. It just all needs to be part of the assessment um, and not, not something that is an automatic. All right, next slide. Um, this is just a plug that you can do pharmacotherapy in older adults. There's four medications, three that are FDA approved and one that is used a lot but not, not FDA approved. My two go-tos are naltrexone and topiramate on this list. I use very little antabuse and very little acamprosate. Acamprosate is a three-time-a-day medication, and in patients already taking a lot of meds, that's not a, a friendly thing to add on to. Um, so this is just an option. Um, there's not a lot of difference in using these drugs or medications in older adults, and they're very effective. Next slide. So this is just an example of um, a primary care patient, kind of a typical patient, just to give you a flavor of sort of how this might uh, work in a primary care setting. It could apply to AAA or other settings as well. So this is a 59-year-old guy with arthritis, diabetes, and hypertension who says to his primary care doctor he's having trouble sleeping and he's missed work a couple times. Um, and he's gotten into some uh, increasingly uh, arguments with his wife. And he doesn't raise alcohol as an issue. Uh, the primary care visit does, in the setting, uh, automatically screens people. Um, he had a PHQ-2 and an audit C score. The audit C was a 9, which is relatively high. Um, and he was in a rush, so he wouldn't stay and talk to anybody. Um, but in this particular practice, is a real practice, the, uh, the nurse reaches out to him and uh, talks to him on the phone. So next slide. Um, the, the behavioral health provider, the nurse or the social worker, uh, looks over the chart, um, when calls the patient, talks about treatment options, talks about the audit C-score. Um, he agrees to cut down initially. They have a couple phone calls. Um, the behavioral health provider has a supervising psychiatrist that they go to. Um, because the patient struggled a little bit, they actually talked about uh, naltrexone. Uh, the patient ended up being uh, willing to do that, um, and you know you have you you do that continuing follow up. But in this case, the psychiatrist does not prescribe the medication. What happens is the the behavioral health provider, the social worker, goes back to the primary care doctor and makes the recommendation, and it's up to the primary care doctor to agree with that or not and to, and to start the medication. Um, often with, with the support, the provider is quite comfortable doing that. Um, and this patient did quite well, as a lot of them do. Next slide. 
uh, so I guess I, I covered a lot of this. So there's a you know there's a couple more visits and there's education um, as part of the plan. There's behavioral activation in terms of trying to get him to do some exercise to step down his alcohol use um, and and actually engage family. That's a big one. Trying to get them to talk to their family. And he does that, and he actually gets uh, a lot better. So that's just a flavor of, of, of how this might work in another setting um, and uh, a really fast introduction to alcohol use disorders in older adults. Thank you for listening. This podcast is presented by the Lewin Group and is supported through the Medicare-Medicaid Coordination Office at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. MMCO is dedicated to helping beneficiaries enrolled in Medicare and Medicaid have access to seamless, high-quality health care that includes the full range of covered services in both programs. To support providers in their efforts to deliver more integrated, coordinated care, MMCO is developing technical assistance and actionable tools based on successful innovations in care models. To learn more about our current efforts and resources, please visit our website, or follow us on Twitter for more details. Our Twitter handle is at integrate underscore care.